Welcome to Sit with the Plastics. I am Meredith, a uh, mod of the plastics. And tonight we are having another serious episode. Um, obviously, as everyone is aware, um, this has been a big year for racial justice, or shall we say injustice, in America. And that has obviously been, um, you know, a very very, very heavy weight on MLS. And we want to talk about racism throughout the league, its effect on the black supporters, the black players, specifically the incident with Real Salt Lake. So, all right, let's get into it. Uh, I have with me today, I have Nick, uh, the chair of Section 8 Chicago and member of Black Fires, Black Supporters Group, the Chicago Fire. Uh, Nick, want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, uh, Nick. Uh, I'm the chairman of uh, Section 8 Chicago, a member of Black Fire. Um, also host of the Weekend Weird uh, podcast, which is down the dial, wherever you listen is to. So. And what are your pronouns, Nick? Oh, he and him. And then our second guest for today is CJ, a real Salt Lake supporter. Uh, CJ, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm CJ. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I've been a season ticket holder since 2010, minus one year that I spent up in Canada. I was actually married in the stadium as well, so been a huge fan of them for a really long time. And last but definitely not least, we have uh, Plastics Co-Mod, Catherine. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know me. But if you haven't, I'm Catherine. I use um, she, her, hers pronouns. Uh, I am a co-founder of The Plastics along with Meredith. I've been a Real Salt Lake fan since 2007. And this was my first year as a season ticket holder. So that's fun and interesting. But I'm sure we'll get into that later. We definitely will. Uh, so first off, you know, as just some backgrounds, obviously, you know, we, uh, not only as allies, but our black friends and black supporters have been, you know, fighting for equality since, you know, pretty much the U.S. became a country. Um, it has definitely increased, you know, in the attention it's getting, all of the uprisings, you know, there have been people protesting for 80 plus days straight in Portland at this time. Um, and obviously that is going to become a hot topic in soccer and something we should all address. So Nick, do you want to talk about, you know, where you are right now in, in 2020 as, as a black soccer supporter? Um, kind of had it up to here with the racism that I experienced. It's like in, in soccer and all just cross sports in general. What the uh, owner of Rio Salt Lake says is, pretty much typical of owners across sports, no matter if they're North America or Asia or, or uh, Europe. Um, I'm, I'm just having flashbacks of Donald Sterling, the former owner of the LA Clippers of the NBA, uh, saying the exact same stuff like that. Uh, you just go on and on through ownership, in, mainly sticking in North America, that most of them are conservative. Most of them uh, have racial t racist tendencies. Um, like across sports, like uh, Amir Khan, the uh, owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars and Fulham and, um, and the, the English League, well, now the English Premier League. 
Uh, they wore a championship. They donated a million dollars to Donald Trump's inauguration party here in Chicago. The McCaskey uh, donating to various Republican Party platforms throughout the throughout the state. Uh, one of the persons on their board of directors is uh, used to be head of the Re Illinois Republican Party who said pretty much sexist, racist things uh, over the years. So this is just all typical racism throughout sports. It's getting a little sickening because we're the ones that were mostly out on the field along with um, Latino players and uh, players from international players. Um, and yet we're the ones experiencing this, this racism. We're the, we're the uh, fans buying, coming to the games, buying merchandise and the ownership. This is how, how do you think of us? And it's just typical of American society and it's getting really sick of it. And I'm tired of it. So on that note, um, I did a little research into the fire and uh, specifically Droman Suedo, our new owner. And in 2018, he donated over $400,000 to Bruce Rauner, our former Republican governor who J.B. Pritzker outed. And yeah, it's even if, even if, you know, the racism isn't as blatant as, you know, what DLH had to say and apparently has had to say loudly to everyone around him, you know, it can be a political donation as well. That, that says a lot. That's a lot of money that could have gone to the black community in Chicago. So let's talk about, you know, action versus, you know, sim sim symbolism and also, you know, performative actions. So how, how did you feel about all of the displays for Black Lives Matter during the MLS's back tournament? You know, did you think that was performative? Was it meaningful to you? What are your feelings? Um, performative from the uh, front offices of the MLS seats. I thought it was performative. From the actual supporters, I thought it was sincere and it was a good start for what they had done. And it needs to go a tad bit further. Like, um, going back to the Salt Lake thing, uh, Catherine would probably speak a little bit more about it because she's in Salt Lake City. But I wouldn't purchase another ticket to another one of their games until that guy is gone, and not only that guy being gone, them making systematic changes to their power structure out there, donating to the uh, the community out there, getting out, um, mostly getting more outreach to African American, uh, African American, Hispanic, Indigenous fans, uh, LGBT community. I just like I understand that Utah is a very conservative state. It's run by um, members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. But, you know, we're living in a time where racism and sexism is totally totally uncalled for, but yet maintained by the power structures um, in this country. And if MLS truly wants to grow the game in this, in this country, you need to make outreach towards more people. So obviously with your experiences, not only, you know, being a board member and now chair of Section 8 Chicago, but also as a member of Black Fires. Uh, for those listeners who aren't in Chicago, uh, Black Fires rolled out demands for the front office and for the community, um, an initiative called You Gotta Change. Uh, they rolled that out in June after the murder by police of George Floyd. What have your experiences been with the fire front office and working with them on, you know, these, these changes that need to take place 
you know, systematically in the front office and in the stands? So they're mostly dodging the questions. I mean, you, there's members in the front office that have really come out and really stepped up to try to make these systematic changes. But what we're asking for, it's literally for most of the front office. Oh, we, we're working on an initiative in November. We'll come out with an initiative. Like, hey, the initiative is now. We're no one's doing anything right now. Like, what we ask for is merely a drop in a bucket. Like, you to expand um, your reach to members of the black community, not just going to Bronzeville, which is a neighborhood on the south side, but uh, we're majority African-American working class people. But more than that, we're in Chatham. We're in uh, Marquette Park. We're, we're in the south suburbs. We're in the western suburbs. We're in the northern suburbs. We're in northwest Indiana, for God's sake. And not only are you leaving from a business standpoint, you're leaving money on the table. You're trying to grow this game and find people to be able to come to this game and share this game with their family, with their friends, and not only that, looking for future players down the line. And that's not only a Chicago Fire problem. That's a the uh, United States Soccer Organization problem. You go look at the United States soccer team, uh, whether it's male or female, and it's not representative of what this country is. It, it is not. And you want to compete on the, from a competition standpoint, you want to compete on the world uh, playing field, and you want to win the World Cup, but you're not acting like you want to win the World Cup. You just want to make a bunch of money and get, and get out. And you need players that are diverse, come from different areas of the country, or immigrating to this country, and make you feel welcome that they're playing this game because they're taking that wealth that they have from when they were in other countries and they're bringing it here and they're not doing that at all. And you see it on the men's side and eventually you'll see it on the women's side too. So I definitely want to talk more about players and, you know, especially black players. Um, I know that you, you know, myself and Jake and Phil of Black Fires often, you know, talk about play Andre Reynolds. Play mm -hmm. Andre Reynolds. Like yeah. the fire have a history of, we have these amazing players like Mo Adams and Andre Reynolds, and we just don't do anything with them. Right. And we're just constantly seeing them on the bench. So obviously with Black Players for Change, you know, also developing this year, I mean, how do you feel about that organization? What do you think front offices can do for Black players? What do you think we can do for Black players to show our support? Um, in terms of the front office uh, for black players, I think it's um, it, it, it gets a little tricky. You try to put out the, the best players out on the field or court, they give you the best opportunity to win. Um, I think more development, if Andre Reynolds is not developing to the, to the point that you want or you feel comfortable, you know, you got Ford Madison. You can always send them up there to get, get seasoning. I mean, you don't get better – and, and playing a game sitting on the bench. You get played better by playing, no matter what you're playing, soccer, basketball, football, baseball, professional wrestling even. You, you can't watch it sitting there, watching it on TV or watching it from the sidelines and think you're going to get it. Um, in, ter in terms of what fans can do, I think it just continuously support the players no matter what. I mean, if they end up sitting before Madison, I uh, know time – we're living in a pandemic right now, so we're not able to 
to move a lot of places that we want to do or do a lot of things that we could do. But they decide to move to Fort Madison and like, hey, get out there and watch those games. Get out there if you can support those players. Um, what was the other real first part of it? The, About black players for change. Black players for change. Good, it's a good start. I like what they're they're doing. Good start. But you like with any movement, you have to push it forward. You have to go push it as much as you possibly can to be able to make systemic change. And that definitely leads me to my next question. You know, obviously with organizations like Black Players for Change and the Hockey Diversity Alliance. You know, and not to mention, you know, the strike that the Milwaukee Bucks kicked off. Mm-hmm. Is that the type of change, you know, that you would like to see more of? Yes, absolutely. Um, even in the labor history with this country or across the world, work stoppages have worked. Last year, CPS uh, teachers, uh, CTU, Chicago Teachers Union, done work stoppages. And it wasn't because of money. And I remember being younger in this city when they first struck and it was all about get as much money as you can. Now with the leadership that they have there, they really truly care about the students. And they went out and they struck, not once but twice within the last five, six years. Work stops just totally, totally work. We want systemic change. We need to make sure that the people who are on top know look, we're not going to take this anymore and we're not going to sit here and make allow you to make a lot of money off of our bodies. So we're going to, and, 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 there's, and those are schools for further social change. That you're not just sitting on the picket line and uh, chanting and passing around coffee. You're learning about different so, uh, social changes and social um, movements across the world. There's schools, there's schools for that. So, yeah, if things are not going the way it is, we're not going to be your entertainment. And people get mad and says, oh, I just want to watch the game. No, sports are not political. It is political. Every time they play that national anthem in the beginning of the game, whether it's American or Canadian, that's a political statement. Every time they give show an advertisement for the military, that's a political statement. Every time the president, no matter who it is, shows up to throw out the first pitch or do the toy toss or present the trophy at the end of the game, that's political. You cannot escape it. Politics is life, and life is politics. And you need to, you need to, people need to learn that. And if you're not comfortable or you're not, you get angry about that, then Step in and be the change and help us out to make changes that we need to do. I think it's become, you know, very apparent, especially, you know, reading some of the comments, even though we all know better than to read the comments, you know, just people's reaction that we don't view these athletes as people, we view them as entertainers, but they're people and they're workers. And we've all had jobs where, you know, we felt dehumanized and disrespected at, and we don't want to go work. Mm-hmm. We, we don't feel like going to work. It could be having a panic attack in the morning, you know, or just feeling sick to your stomach or not being able to sleep because you know you have to wake up and go work for an organization that doesn't have your back and doesn't support you and just doesn't care. You know, also all players across the U.S., you know, who did strike, you know, whether that was, you know, a wildcat strike or whether they did, you know, work with their leagues like the NHL and, you know, agree to a postponement 
that was amazing to see. But I also think it's, you know, you can't have this conversation without talking about, you know, the repercussions that players will face and have faced for speaking out against racism and other forms of bigotry. Um, I believe there was, wasn't there an RSL player who spoke out? Catherine, do you want to speak on that? I guess uh, there, there are two really notable examples of Real Salt Lake players speaking out about injustice in this country that I can think of, and CJ might have some um, really good insight onto others that I might be missing, but uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was like, like 2017, probably, uh, we had a player by the name of Jordan Allen, who is, um, he's very young, um, at the time, you know, he was a younger player, he's black, and during the national anthem, he had started to kind of pivot away from the flags, and while putting his hand to his chest during the anthem, he would um, hold his left fist down, and he had stated that that was just an ongoing reminder of the racial injustice in this country, and, you know, he, his career was pretty plagued by injury from what I remember, but um, after I had seen him do that, I don't think I ever saw him take the field again for Real Salt Lake. And when he, I think he actually retired due to injury. It was pretty unceremonious from what I remember. There was very little recognition to the four years that he had spent playing for Real Salt Lake. Um, I think maybe five at the time that he retired could have even been six. Whereas when players like Tony Beltran retired due to injury, there was like a lot of fanfare, a lot of emotion um, around their retirement. And then we can, we can get into Nana Monuoha's recent statements a little bit later, but I just want to make sure, CJ, am I getting this right? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I didn't actually know that about Jordan Allen, which is mm -hmm. funny because I was around 2017, I was a contributor for RSL Soapbox. Um, and I sort of known that. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I saw him do it in Chicago and I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, if that was like deliberate. And then uh, there were a couple articles written and he was like, you know, when he was asked, he answered. And, and I think that there was like a little bit of bad feeling from the team from what I could speculate about him having done that. Uh, not to hijack this interview, Meredith, but CJ, you just mentioned that you worked at RSL Soapbox and they've been doing pretty incredible work this week. Yeah, they have. They're, they're a really good group. Um, I, the only reason I stopped writing for them was because, like I said, I moved to Canada. And then when I came back, it's just, you know, it's been a process, right? You've all, you've moved at least from Chicago back to Salt Lake. So it's, it's rough, but yeah, they're, they're coming out with some incredible stuff and they're very well trusted by a lot of the players. Um, a lot of people close to the organization, talk to them um and and trust them and so to i mean to be on top of it as they are has been really incredible and i know that they had a lot of issues with the front office in the past i know that they had a lot of issues with um Pepke and oh maybe even some other guys i can't think of or remember right now but they're still pretty well you know trusted and they're doing a phenomenal job this week it's been that's who I go to for my RSL news. I don't even, I don't even go to any other news organizations because if, if they do get something correct, they're just not as kind of writers as the RSL Soapbox crew. So I just really like their writing. Well, RSL is definitely something we're here to talk about. Um, 
it's it's funny that you know you were you mentioned speculating Catherine about that player's departure and I feel like now speculation is completely and totally allowed because of RSL's owner and apparently how his racism is the biggest open secret in Utah. Obviously, you know, as CJ just said, um, RSL Soapbox is a great resource. Um, they have been getting a lot of interviews. They've been getting a lot of tea. They've been getting a lot of leaks. How people, including multiple MLS boys, have leaked to us about how, you know, when he took the team over at his celebration, he went on a tangent and, you know, used the word colored to refer to a black woman. Then one of the local news agencies did an interview with our source and, you know, two other employees corroborating it. And the story was a million times worse. So Catherine or CJ, do you kind of want to give us a rundown on everything that went down in RSL uh, supporterdom and community this week? Yeah. Um, so the game on Wednesday against LAFC was one that was already kind of a lot of fans were on the fence about. We, uh, I think the conversation was that while it would be amazing to go back into the stadium, it just wasn't the right time for a lot of reasons, right? The biggest one being the, the pandemic going on. And then the second one being just, I feel when so many things regarding racism are going on, it just makes it really, maybe not impossible, but re really difficult to go on about normal day life. I, I find myself feeling guilty anytime I felt any kind of happiness because I knew that there was someone else suffering. Um, and so it was something that I don't think a lot of people were on board with to begin with. They get to the game and I, I think there's a lot of blame shifting maybe, but I, I mostly think a lot of people don't want to take credit over who started it, whether it was LAFC or our players or a combination of the you know, both, but they ultimately decided not to play the game. And that set off the owner who decided the next day to get onto a radio station he owned and discuss how ultimately, how do I put it? He, he was very uh, upset about it. He felt personally kind of, uh, I can't think of the word that he used. Well, he was just disappointed. That's the word. Yeah. He compared he it being stabbed yeah and it just kept going and then the thing that was the kicker for a lot of people was his saying that he doesn't even you know it took the wind out of his sails to put any money into the team uh to try to get good players if they were going to treat him you know personally like that um he took it very personally which i think was a huge you know kind of thing but yeah what were your feelings or what were your impression of DLH before, you know, all of this happened? What was your general opinion of him? He almost made, I mean, I almost stopped getting season tickets entirely because of him. When I moved back from Canada, I had the option because I moved back in April. I could have bought season tickets and I actually got a phone call from someone in the front office asking what it would take for me to buy in again. And I told them outright, I said, get a new owner. I can't, I can't stand Deloitte. He built the Academy in Harriman. He built the studio in Harriman. And I know here I, um, I'm up here in Logan and I know in North Logan, there's this fancy building that has the RSL logo on it. I have no clue what they do, but it's up here. 
Um, I think it's some kind of training grounds for kids. But like I said, I, I never see anyone there. It just, I just know it exists. Um, and so I know he put a lot of money into it that way. But it, it became very evident and around, I, I would say entirely when he took over. When he took over, he didn't offer Jason Price a contract extension immediately, forced him to prove himself to him. We made it to the cup that year and then tried to get him. But by then he had already had an interview with um, New York City FC and he was all but gone. I remember speaking to someone about it who said that it wasn't about the money, that Deloitte Hansen actually offered Jason Christ more money than New York City did, but he just couldn't work under him. From then, I knew that there were going to be problems. In addition to that, I mean, we lost Garth Lagerway and Jason Christ in the same year, and he didn't even hire a GM. He hired Craig Weibel as a technical director, which I think was a title he used so that he could underpay him. Um, I don't have any evidence of that whatsoever, it just seemed really fishy because the year after he was promoted to a general manager. And so I was like, oh, okay, I see where we're going with things now. We're going to pinch pennies literally everywhere we can. And so it was really hard. The team has been in a slow decline ever since 2013, and it's been incredibly difficult. I thought his handling of everything that happened with Mike Pecky last year was just ridiculous um, and put us on the map for the exact – reason you would not want to be put on the map. I mean, to have a former coach sue the club for a breach of contract is ridiculous publicity to, to have. And so I was already on the fence about buying in this year, but I did it because I missed the team um, and I love the sport and I wanted to be there. And so I wasn't shocked. I, I, I've known Deloitte Hansen to be a complete capitalist center, centered kind of Megalomaniac is the best way to put it. Uh, my season ticket rep at the time he took over told me that he almost wanted to get rid of the entire South Bowl um, and make it kind of corporate, you know, for, for people to throw pro, uh, corporate parties there. And that was a huge thing that he was trying to do. It was a huge thing he ended up doing in the, the pavilion um, on the East End that, you know, a lot of supporters used to go during halftime and just kind of support the team there. Um, he made that a huge corporate thing and, and it just became very clear that he was entirely about money. There seems to be a deep history of labor exploitation with this one. Um, so I, I think your, your bit of tea slash speculation about, you know, intentionally underpaying the athletic director and then promoting him next year, all of a sudden, I mean, this is the man who, you know, also in his interviews this week, you know, threatened to lay off, you know, stadium workers and, you know, other employees of the organization and let it be noted that, you know, the players paid furloughed workers. He did not during the pandemic when he furloughed all of his workers, the players, his, his, as he likes to call them, his players they paid for his employees. Catherine, I know you definitely have some feelings about all of this. So what do you, what do you think about DLH, Catherine? Yeah, I like try hard not to quote Mean Girls too much on the podcast because it's just a little too on the nose. But like right now I'm that girl who's like, who doesn't even go here but has a lot of feelings. Um, because I, you know, I moved in... Uh, 2014. That's the year. So I left right 
after, right around like when Deloy was kind of getting hold of the team. Um, and I just came back in January. I've said this to a lot of people. Real Salt Lake was the thing. I mean, other than the job that I moved back for, it was the thing that I was most excited to move back for, right? Like I knew that that would be the place where I would build community with people. Like I wasn't really worried about making new friends because I knew that I would find people who I had things in common with. And when the plastic started, that was like ramped up into gear. That was the weekend of our uh, home opener. And so many people were already like so kind to me at the tailgate and just like really welcoming. And when I talked about the plastics, which was like two days old at that point, um, just like so, so enthusiastic and offered such great support. But like, yeah, I'm done. Um, over over the, the course of this pandemic, I've just seen things happening time and time again, where it's just like, how can I support this organization, right? Like, how can I support a billionaire who furloughs his workers and then lets Natum Onuoha and then fans, you know, provide mutual aid to these people and then goes on a radio show and criticizes that exact player, Natum Onuoha, uh, for, you know, forcing the game to be canceled without even mentioning the reasons why players were striking, right? Like that to me, I think is the thing that hurts, or I guess like not even hurts, that like makes me angriest. Like I'm not hurt, right? This doesn't hurt me as a white woman. Um, I have a lot of privilege and the people that he's trying to hurt aren't me, right? It's, he's apologizing to the fans like me while saying that, you know, fans who are black are not part of our community, right? Like he, he didn't even mention the fact that police shootings continue to happen, not just in Kenosha, not just in Minneapolis, but here in Utah, right? We've been protesting this whole time. Utah's been making it on the map for a lot of stuff this, uh, this summer and none of it good, uh, which honestly, it doesn't surprise me. Did you have um, an overall impression of him outside of, you know, oh, evil billionaire owner? I know that obviously, you know, you lived in Chicago for the like biggest duration of your support. Um, so obviously it would make sense if you were a little like out of touch. But what was your what was your impression of DLH? Yeah, to be honest, I was a little bit out of touch. I, you know, like I saw our team getting worse as, as many people did, but, you know, I also saw him buy the Royals and I was so excited about women's soccer coming to Utah. Die hard, die hard Royals fan from day one. And, you know, of course, when he bought them, he said something about how he has daughters, so women's soccer, blah, 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 you know, the worst. But like, you know, I was so excited for women's soccer to be making it in Utah and, uh, this might get me in trouble. I feel kind of like <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Um, Those are the best things to say. Right? Say it. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, there was a big part of me that was just like, well, another rich white Mormon man, right? Like they run our state. That's who's in power here um, is rich white members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as someone who is only one of those things, white, um, I have gotten very used to it. I've gotten used to seeing men like Deloy Hansen do whatever the fuck they want. And um, there's a huge part of me that just has dealt with it throughout my whole life. And moving back here, I think, was a stark reminder of the fact that 
that's what happens here, right? Like, I don't know if CJ had that same thing happen when you moved to Canada and then moved back. Was it like culture shockish for you at all? Absolutely. Um, especially one thing I, that I noticed, uh, the first thing I noticed uh, being up in Canada was just how different the vernacular was, right? Nobody, nobody shuddered every time you swore. You know, coming back into that was different. Coming back where, you know, you have a state, an entire state uh, dominated by religion. And all of a sudden you have to find these, these communities that you can be yourself in. Um, not just as a non-member of the church, not just as a person of color, but as a person who drinks, um, you know, as, as a person who, <laughs> quite frankly, isn't a misogynist, uh, as a person who isn't, you know, a capitalist, um, isn't conservative. You got so many, and even then, um, I don't, I don't think that a lot of people in Utah who claim to be liberals are actually liberals. They're more centrist than just about anything else. And so it's really difficult to talk to anyone about them. And, and so that was tough. Yeah. Yeah. If, if anything's proved that to me, uh, it's like the reaction. And of course, Meredith said earlier, don't read the comments, but you know, like I've been reading the comments on the Trib articles or even just the headlines on the Trib articles about the protests here. And like CJ said, like a lot of these people claim that they're liberal, right? Salt Lake has a Democrat for a mayor. She is a lesbian. You know, everyone's like, oh, we're doing great. That sounds familiar. Being sounds in a little familiar, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I believe Nick had, had something he wanted to add on this point. Oh, uh, yeah. It Especially with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they have a very problematic history to begin off with. Um, Joseph Smith, the founder, had said disparaging things about people of color, particularly black people. And they had it in their church doctrine that to not have black Mormons until 1977. And even if you look at it now, the church elders, none, none of them are, are people of color. They're all white males. And it's a shame that the Catholic Church in their heads are more diverse than the Church of Latin, Jesus Christ Latin Saints. And particularly if you deal with sports, if you look at the former owner of uh, the Utah Jazz, Larry Miller, if you looked at his teams when he owned it, especially during the 90s, when it knew it because they were playing the Bulls for two years in the NBA Finals, 97 and 98. Be looking at make up a team, it, it was it was it, not as diverse as like other teams. It, look at it, it wasn't diverse as the Bulls, was it? You had Carl Malone, who's uh, we're not going to get a Carl Malone on this show. <laughs> um, Shannon Shannon Anderson, uh, Byron Russell, and I can't name another black player on that team. It was, and it was just Utah is just very problematic and. The, the way they, their church is run is, is very, very problematic and just, it, it's, it's baffling to me. So it really does seem like, you know, and obviously I've never been to Utah. I don't think Utah and I would click if I ever go to Utah. It's literally like me. get drunk and go hiking with Catherine and that's it. 
I'm, I'm obviously just like getting the impression because some of this is new to me, some of this isn't, that, you know, Utah and Salt Lake City have just fostered this culture of white supremacy and also white supremacy, you know, joining hands of capitalism to foster this culture where Deloitte can walk around, buy teams and say whatever the fuck he wants. And, you know, obviously Utah got us to this point or got you got RSL to this point. Um, but what else what else brought brought us to where we are now having to talk about this on a podcast? Yeah. So one thing I will say is that Utah's state slogan is industry, right? We're the beehive state because bees are hard workers. Uh, this is something that Utah values more than anything, you know, capitalist pursuit. And so you're absolutely right in saying that you know, white supremacy and capitalism are foundational um, in, in Utah's settlement by, by white people. Uh, and, and we can't forget that when we talk about Deloy Hansen, right? Like, I think the thing that was so egregious to me was it was apparent from his second interview and uh, Don Garber's statement, you know, that second interview came after he had talked to Don Garber. Don Garber put out that statement after talking to Deloy Hansen, and it was clear to me that absolutely nothing was going to happen to him, right? This is just going to be, you know, he makes his apology. His wife gets to text a journalist about how, you know, Deloitte Hansen has given out the new Jim Crow and gave a minimal amount of money to um, a foundation that worked uh, within a country in Africa that I don't think she even named. Uh, it was just clear to me that nothing was going to happen to him until Andy Williams spoke out until the athletic article was posted but this is this is historical and and uh i'm just gonna pause really quick cj do you know about the betsy ross flag and everything do you want to talk about that or do you want me to keep going um i know a little bit about it i know um that it it happened that all went down what was it last year or the year before last year so okay so last year i was i was still in moving mode Okay. Um, and trying to reset everything from Canada. But I do know the supporter, and he's been in the South Goal for at least as long as I have. Um, I, don't, I don't know him personally, but you see people, right? He's a very well-known person within the Salt Lake community. And I don't know why, why he felt the need to tie that flag up one day, but he did. And it kept getting taken down. And I know that at one point, um, someone else took it down, and he told the security guard, and that person got in trouble for it and it became this huge thing of controversy over freedom of speech and what that flag represents and because we're in Utah I mean I, I drove I'm in Logan and I drove um, just next to a guy who had like five decals of that flag on his car and it's a very I mean, it's just a very well-known symbol here, and every single person here will tell you it is not racist, and it, they, are, they aren't racist for flying it, and everything like that. For you a know. Chicagoan who, you know, does not have knowledge of this, and for anyone else who may be listening, what does the Betsy Ross flag represent to marginalized people? Yeah, so the Betsy Ross flag, um, you know, is like the original flag of the United States of America, the 13 stars for the 13 colonies. And um, in recent years, it's been appropriated by white supremacist uh, groups and um, has been used as kind of like one of those sort of 
underground markers. Signaling. Yeah, absolutely. And like they were going to put it on a pair of Nikes and Colin Kaepernick actually uh, to I tie it all it. together. Yeah, he had said like, this is personally offensive. This is something that white supremacists have adopted. And it's again, one of those things that didn't start out as like a symbol of racism, unlike the Confederate flag, which has always been a symbol of racism, but like has become, has started to mean that over the years. And so this fan bringing this flag in was kind of a dog whistle, right? Of like, this is what I mean, but I have plausible deniability. And, and this was all happening around the same time as the Iron Front controversies. So, you know, of course, Alexi Lawless had to, I'm sorry, I said the name, I've invoked him, <laughs> um, had to get involved about the Iron Front and the Betsy Ross flag and all this stuff. But yeah, it was bad and it was handled poorly by Real Salt Lake as an organization. Um, it was handled poorly by local media. He was allowed to go on Fox 13 and have this interview where he said that he felt like people were going to commit violence against him, this fan and his wife, uh, even though that had never happened, right? People were just like, don't fly this racist shit in our supporter section. Um, but again, these are just things that don't get handled well by our organization and kind of show this pattern that has been so clear. Obviously, we've touched on the culture of Utah and how it's enabled, you know, men like DLH, you know, to become very powerful in the state. Let's talk about the supporters culture. I mean, obviously, you know, the story that you guys just told about the man with the Betsy Ross flag, um, would you say that people like him compromise, you know, most of the supporters section? Do you feel welcome? Do you feel safe? I mean, what is, what's the makeup of the su supporters section for RSL? Um, so the makeup is, is really interesting. I want to say there are three or four big groups around the stadium. You got section 26 and then you got whatever group, the one guy from Rancid is in 34. I don't know what section they're in or what they call themselves. Um, and then you have, I guess, SCU and RCV are kind of together now a days. Um, I know that one of the, a lot of them stopped coming really shortly after Deloitte Hansen took over. And La Barra is there. But there is one group that wanted to unify the entire South End. The biggest problem that, you know, was the case down there is up until just a few years ago, the supporter section was in supporters only. Uh, anybody could buy their tickets and they were the absolute cheapest in the entire stadium. And so what really sucked was, and I hate to say this, but you would get these pretty tame fans, these massive families, these massive LDS families who would show up to one game a year and demand that you sit down. And it was the most frustrating thing possible. Um, and they would park themselves right next to La Vara, um, who just goes you know, there to support the team for the full 90, drums, trumpets, the works. And they would either romanticize them in a way that I think Utahns really romanticize uh, Mexican culture and stuff like that, where, where they can be not a part of it, um, but can be, you know, join in for that one moment and look cool for their friends and for Instagram and things like that. Um, or they would just completely trash it. And it was the most frustrating thing to, to be there because I've been in Section 9 right next to them for 10 years, like I said, and got to hear all the conversations that all the people had about that. Um, since moving, though, to supporters only, 
I definitely feel welcome. I, I definitely feel welcome at the stadium. I definitely, every single supporters group has come out and um, spoken for the support of the players. Um, everyone has come out and uh, has asked Lloyd Hansen to sell the team or asked the league to step in. And I know that Catherine mentioned this earlier, but after his comments, after the Don Garber statement, I was like, all right, that's it. Like, I was looking for a new team because there was no way I could keep supporting uh, uh, Real Salt Lake if he was there, and I knew the league wouldn't do anything. Um, and so I'm really grateful for Andy Williams for speaking up in the way that he did. And I've been really grateful for all the supporters group and especially um, RSL Soapbox and all their people coming out and saying the things that they've said. Um, because it's not easy. It, it's it's really not. And that is something that I think I've never had issues with, uh, within the stadium at least. I'm very fortunate for that because I know those kinds of issues do exist in our league. And I know they exist in our stadium. And I'm very fortunate for you know not having dealt with them just yet. One, one last question kind of related to the overall culture of supporters as well as the front office. Do you think that the ownership in the front office of Real Salt Lake, you know, caters to these more conservative, right-leaning types of fans? Do you think that there's more value placed on them than, you know, the supporters who are at every match chanting, you know, screaming, playing instruments? Uh, I mean, I think Deloitte talked a big game. I really do. He, he talked such a big game when it came to the supporters. They got the sheds under the supporters section that they put all their flags and drums and stuff in so they don't have to carry them into every game. Um, but I do know that if he could, he absolutely would shrink the supporter section uh, if it would make him more money, hands down. No, no question, he would do it. Um, I know that he chartered Wasatch Legion out for the Monarchs, uh, one of their playoff games or the, uh, the USL Championship Final or, or something like that. But I know that once they got back, he, he kind of just swept them under the rug. And, and I'm trying to remember the story. I think they got back to the runway and he just left them there um, on the runway and uh, bust his, him and his family out of, out of there and, and just kind of left them there to fend for themselves, which I think a lot of them were a little upset about um, and definitely, you know, confused because who – who invites someone on their charter plane and then treats them like that afterwards, right? As if as if they owe him a favor. Every single thing I hear about this man just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. There are so many stories. And obviously, after this week, people have been emboldened to speak out, not just people that have worked for him or worked with him or played for him. Catherine, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the player statements that have come out this week? And yeah, I think we'd be remiss if, um, you know, I, I think we're like about an hour into talking and, and none of us have said the name Sierra King, right? She made one of the strongest statements that anyone has made, uh, and she is a current player for the Utah Royals. Um, she's a rookie, so she's probably not making that much money, and she doesn't have like a lot of standing, right? Like, Natum, we brought in from the Premier League, and I'm not trying to say that, like, there, it's comparable, but, like, there is a little bit that Natum had going for him. You know, he has a little bit more of a platform than she does, and she, not only did she make this statement, but she's been at protests, she's been using her platform to talk a lot about Black Lives Matter, and, you know, she's a Black woman who's putting herself on the line 
and and speaking out against her boss right like a billionaire and and i think that you know we all need to have a lot of respect for her and we all need to back her right like this is not just something that she should be doing this is not just something that natum should be doing but um you know we've seen former players like nick Ramondo come out and really condemn this apparently he was on the phone with Josie Altador today, so that's exciting. But uh, yeah, we've we've seen a lot of people come out in opposition to to all of this, including supporters and players. Yeah, and I haven't gone, you know, looking for player statements, but um, I I would really like to hear from some of the old heads like Kyle Beckerman. Um, I'd I'd like to hear some of the white some of the white players put themselves on the line the same way that King and Onuoha have. Well, and that's what, you know, that's what Black players are also asking, you know, their their teammates to do. And it's just sad that we've reached the point where they, you know, post statements on Twitter and they're like, I can say this as much as I want, but you need to say it with me and you need to say it louder. Um, I've definitely seen that with Sarah Gordon of the Chicago Red Stars. You know, she, she came out and she's, she's been one of the most vocal NWSL players throughout this time period. And, you know, she's imploring her teammates and her fans to speak out and, you know, and that there's power in numbers. I I think that it's also something we've seen happen to black supporters like Nick, right? Like when all of this started to become more of a national conversation again, like, I don't want to put you on blast, Nick, but the front office reached out to black fires about how to fix it. Right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, we were saying this amongst ourselves is we're not getting paid by the fire. Why are you asking us to help fix it? You're, you're okay, it's cool to ask us for advice, what you think we should do, but to come out and initially say, like, we're telling you, like, hey, we need more representation in the stands for more African-American working class people or African-Americans in general coming into the stands, and well, it's like, well, you can pass out these flyers in Bronzeville. It's like, how many times I have to tell you, we're more than just Bronzeville. We're more than what we're this Chicago's a secondary city, but we're but we're more than just Bronzeville. And you should be the ones running advertisements and and handing out tickets and going to high schools uh, across this city more than just going to a couple of North Side high schools and going to say, oh, we did our diversity quote-unquote diversity check in Pilsen. Like, you know, Hispanic people live in more just Pilsen, too. And you can't just ask us to do it and ask us to do everything because we're the Black Supporters Group. It's like, no, you should have more people that know about diversity and are diverse in your front office to guide you in that as opposed to just coming to us. I can definitely co-sign all of that because I was at that meeting where they basically told black buyers like, Oh, why don't you guys go to the, go hit the South side and do outreach for us. And that did not end well for the fire front office that day. Not with Nick, not with Nick in the room. So to you, you know, we, we touched on this kind of at the beginning of this conversation, but you know, what does real action and support for black players, fans and staff look like? More than just words. It has to be actions. Um, you could say a bunch of things and like, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, but your actions speak a hell of a lot longer. You go out and do this. It's not necessarily saying anything. You're going out there and help grow the game, uh, putting in, making sure fields are kept and 
making sure, giving initiatives, uh, and not only pressuring US, the U.S. soccer organization to go back into these high schools and push the game, no matter who they are. That's how you make systemic change. And if people are being uh, belligerent, racist, sexist, whether they were drinking or not, making them feel like they're not welcome here. And making the people who come in, whether they're black, whether they're Hispanic, whether they're Arab, whether they're Asian, whether they're uh, transgender, uh, gay, straight, you name it, making them feel welcome in the state. And it's done by actions, not just words. Words are hollow. Actions go a long way. I definitely, you know, and I'm, I'm not the only one who feels this way, obviously, but this seems to just be a turning point for the league. And, you know, it's just basically like, do it or don't. Like, are you going to listen to your your players, the people who, you know, are, are making their livelihoods, but also your livelihoods and lining your pockets? Are you going to listen to the players? Are you going to listen to the supporters who line your pockets? So, you know, what, what do we think the future of MLS looks like? I mean, Don Garber's job is basically just to make sure all the mil- millionaires and billionaires who own the teams are happy. You know, where do we go from here? Will there be change or will it just be more of the same? You know, honestly, like, I am usually the person on this podcast who's like, you know, we can do it, like, super optimistic in Utah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, I think, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little ground down. I, I don't know that the future of MLS looks any better than where we are right now. Um, I think that, like, there's a huge reluctance on the part of uh, a lot of fans and Obviously, our our good friend Don Garber, um, who is of course probably listening to this right now because he cares so much about. If Don Garber is listening, I would just like to say that last night Catherine referred to him as Daddy Don, and now I want to quit BDSM forever. So hi, Daddy Don. <laughs> Please listen, Sorry, Don we Garber. All need, oh my God. A little laughter right now. Continue, Catherine. <laughs> well, now that I've been like dragged to filth, I don't know that I can continue. But um, yeah, you know, like uh, honestly, like I, I think there's like a huge investment in not acknowledging that white supremacy exists in this league, right? It exists in the owners. It is the structure by which a lot of these fans operate. Um, I've seen way more people complain on Facebook, not on soccer Twitter, because, you know, soccer Twitter's in a rage right now, which is great. I'm very happy about that. But complaining about, you know, having to drive out to the stadium from an hour away and then not getting to see a game, then I have seen people supporting the players. So (laughs) uh, this is a very depressing future. Um, for MLS that I'm painting, but I think, you know, there are people like the four of us, um, like every member of Black Fires and every member of the Plastics who, you know, I may not, if fucking Deloitte Hansen stays at Real Salt Lake, I'm not going to be a Real Salt Lake fan, but I'm not going to shut up. I mean, I'm probably never going to shut up. So, um, you know, we aren't finished here, right? Like, we get yeah, mad no at MLS. Yeah. No one yeah. is giving up. No one's defeated. It's just looking a little bleak right now. But that bleakness and that darkness is a reminder of why we do need to keep going and why we do need to fight, especially for, you know, as, as white people or non-black people, we need to fight and support 
our, our black supporters. You know, it's as simple yeah. as that. Um, on a personal note, you know, and, and Nick sees it too. Uh, you know, if you go on the Chicago Fire hashtags, you know, over the past week, you you would expect, you know, people to be talking about Black Lives or another man was almost murdered by the police. This is now paralyzed. You know, maybe let's have a talk about racism in MLS. Maybe let's have a talk about white supremacy and capitalism in MLS. Oh, no, they're just arguing about the badge. They're still just arguing about the badge. So I would like to say that, obviously, there are white supremacists in our stands. There are people waving the Betsy Ross flag. But there's also a level of complicity that comes along with silence. And when you do just want to stick to sports, it's very selfish. And, you know, people are literally begging you to listen to them and to amplify their voices. And you just want to argue about a badge. So, you know, that sort of thing and talking with, you know, Nick and, and Jake from Blackfire is talking about that all the time. Every time the police murder another black man, no one on the, no one in Chicago wants to actually talk about it. So I, I kind of relate to that feeling of, of hopelessness of like, wow, we really can't get through to people, can we? Do you want to speak on that a little, Nick, about just your feelings of the future of MLS and, you know, the supporters and the league and Daddy Don Garber? <laughs> um, I'm just a cynical Catholic um, in terms of as a league in general. I think that as long as things continue to people just sweep it under the rug and uh, just go, well, it's not my problem. Uh, I'm not that. I'm not that person. Or Oh, let's just stick to just stick to the game. Looks like in politics, I don't see that making that change in terms of front office. But at the same time, if more people, which what we have right now is a good start, but we need more, and we need to building more, more supportive, more fans, keep pointing out problems and trying to get solutions. Yeah, there's going to be some systemic change because not only are we supporters, we're paying supporters. If the money dries up, you don't got a league anymore. All of a sudden, you're like your old NASL down the drain going bankruptcy and there's no soccer here. So um, as long as we keep fighting for what is righteous, so we keep pointing out what what is racist, what is sexist, what is ableism, we can make that system change because they can't, not, they can't ignore it. They really can't. They can't just go, oh, they don't need anything because we could just go, oh, we'll see you later. Um, and all of a sudden, you don't have a league. So that's where the systemic change comes from. Real change comes from the streets. Real change comes from within us, not from the effort. And on a more personal note, you know, just about the future of supporterdom in the league, Catherine and CJ, what would it take? For you to renew your season tickets, what would it take to get you guys out to another match? What's the bare minimum? Uh, I'm not going to go back, or I, I'm not. I have a lot of Real Salt Lake gear, and I don't even want to wear any of it, do anything. I don't want to watch the game tonight at all until Dooley Hansen is out, um, which sucks because Real Salt Lake means a lot to me. But that's the absolute minimum. He's He's got to go, and then we can start from there. Catherine? Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm not watching the match tonight. Um, I usually, like, wear an RSL jersey when I record these podcasts, and, and I'm obviously not wearing one now. 
Deloy has to go. Andy Carroll has to go. Anyone who heard Deloy Hansen use racist language needs to go. Yeah, I, I think that's the bare minimum, I, I guess. But like, you know, I'm already out here supporting Sounders. Just call me Jordan Morris. <laughs> I'm done. No, no, like, but I don't want to be done. You know, like, CJ said that he got married in the stadium, right? Like, I've been going to the riot as long as it's been the riot. I went to games at Rice Eccles Stadium, which is a football stadium, and sat on metal bleachers. Like, I may be a new season ticket holder, but, like, Real Salt Lake means a lot to me. I mean, it's why I'm sitting here talking to Meredith um, as a plastic. But I, I can't be an RSL fan until we have ownership that supports our Black players, our Black staff, our Black fans, and puts action behind words. I think that's definitely the takeaway from talking to the three of you tonight. Um, you know, we, we as allies, we need to be better and we need to be louder. And as Nick has said many times, it goes beyond words. It goes beyond me saying we need to be better. You know, I need to do things that are better and we all do. Also, you know, important to note that, you know, hitting capitalists where it hurts, which is their wallets, is a very effective way of getting stuff done. That is what boycotting is. So respect and solidarity for boycotting your own team. Fire fans have been there before too. So, you know, keep doing that. Keep hitting them where it hurts. Keep making a statement. Keep being loud. Yeah, this guy has to go, but it's not as simple as, you know, think of him as a Confederate statue. It's like you can topple him and you can make him go away and maybe that statue's not there anymore, but all of the things that allowed and enabled that statue's existence are still going to be there. And that's what RSL as an organization, even if they get rid of DLH, that is what they need to really work on doing if they want their players' trust and their supporters' trust. And probably most importantly to them, their supporters' money. Meredith, I agree so much. I do want to say, though, like, I've been really negative about Real Salt Lake, about Utah, about, you know, the future of MLS. But I do want to say that one thing that this has shown me is that there are other people who are yelling alongside those of us who don't support, you know, who don't want to support white supremacy, who want to work on being actively anti-racist. And, you know, like, the plastics brought CJ into my life. We've never had a conversation uh, face-to-face, or I guess Zoom to Zoom before today. And, like, that is really powerful. Um, it was really powerful to see how many of us were just completely disgusted and ready to keep fighting um, and keep toppling those statues and replacing them with something better, like Meredith said. I'm sure it's also even more powerful, you know, to see in a state like Utah that there are like-minded people like you and CJ out there, you know, who are willing to yell alongside you. So not all hope is lost. And let's do something fun and positive. We'll keep the negative out of this one because this is another very special episode of Sit with the Plastics. So, you know, we usually do a segment about who can't or can't sit with you. So this week, let's talk about who can sit with you, which what is something positive that's happened in your life lately? Something that makes you smile. CJ, let's start with you. So I teach at Utah State University here in Logan, but in addition to that, I, uh, I work at a treatment center where it used to be where I was focused heavily on teenagers who have ASD or addiction issues or behavioral issues. 
but I recently moved over to our transitions program, which help, helps them out after they graduate from the program and, and into adulthood and, you know, basically just helping them do budgets, go grocery shopping, uh, take care of themselves, that kind of stuff. And talking to these, these Gen Z kids has been wonderful. Oftentimes, you know, before I even have a chance to sit with them, they're bringing up popular culture, uh, other issues that are going on. Um, every time I go to one of them, you know, we have a very long conversation about, you know, protests going on. Um, there was one in Logan back in June that they all wanted to go to that we were able to go to. And so, so a lot of these kids that are coming up, they, they hear us yelling, us, you know, all the older millennials or, or maybe even younger millennials kind of yelling and they're, they're taking up charge with us and, and it's been great to see. And I know that a lot of them get bad reps for a lot of reasons, but absolutely, I think these, these more vocal Gen Z kids are, are kids that I love to be around. It's definitely really inspiring. Like I'm in awe of Gen Z and I think that they're cooler than us in a lot of ways and the kids are going to be all right. Uh, Nick, who can, who or what can sit with you this week? So it's two. Well, first uh, the youth, uh, they're out there uh, doing the work, leading the way. Uh, we always say the youth will lead the way. What they've been out there doing, organizing protests, organizing um, food pantries, being medics out there spreading the word on social media, man, they, they, like people, like, I remember being younger and everyone was harping on younger people, we all never do anything, like, well, I don't want to hear that ever again, because they, the youth today is leading the way, pushing, doing the fight back, and it's absolutely great. The second one, uh, still sticking with sports, even though it's not soccer, the white, Chicago White Sox, they've been tearing it up, man, they have been tearing it up, they're like, a Brehu, Last Saturday, I'm sitting in a bar watching the Sox kick the crap out of the Cubs. Ray, who lost three home runs right in the middle of Wrigley Field. Um, man, <laughs> we, we've been saying for a long time to the Cubs fans, like, we're going to catch up with y'all. We caught up with y'all. So, so the youth of the day and the White Sox, they can, they can sit with it, definitely. Catherine? I'm having such a hard time thinking of something meaningful, you guys. It's been a really long week. For me, the thing that's really making me happy this week is that, you know, as complicated as it is, uh, classes have started on the campus where I work, and um, this is the first semester where I get to teach, like, an actual one-credit class, so I get to uh, talk with students, like, every week, and um, I'm just really excited to kind of, like, learn a little bit more about the campus where I'm working and learn more about my students so that I can be a lot more available to them and, and kind of start to grow into my job. This is so like cheesy, um, but on like a much smaller sense, the sad part is that Arsenal won a trophy today, but after they won the trophy, um, I got to chat with one of uh, my friends from Chicago who uh, is the best shouts to Dilly Yang. And we just had like a good chat while she took shots of Malort and celebrated her team. And it was kind of fun to see someone be happy about soccer when I've been so angry about it this whole week. Um, and it's a trophy that doesn't mean anything. So I couldn't even be that mad. Meredith? It doesn't mean anything unless you win it. 
<laughs> Listen, call me and when you everything. Call me uh, when you want an Audi crazy. cup. <laughs> I was telling our friend Jake because he was like, "Wait, is the Community Shield a thing? Like an actual thing?" And I'm like, "Eh." I'm like, "Eh." Like, eh. I mean, I can't even. I don't think it's it's not a real thing. It's it's not a real trophy. I'll, you heard it here first. Mayor of the Arsenal supporters said that the Community Shield is not a real trophy. Um, and that is why sit with me. can't sit with me. <laughs> um, but uh, it's actually so shocking, everyone. Uh, winning the Community Shield is not the highlight of my week. I did not even watch it. I attempted to watch it, realized I canceled ESPN Plus, and then was just like, whatever. But I will say who can sit with me is the NHL. I would argue that baseball and hockey are probably the two most racist sports in the country and hockey perpetually disappoints me um i've been through like i think i'm on my fifth hockey team now golden knights don't fuck it up i'll switch to another team there's a lot um but i will say that them listening to the hockey diversity alliance uh which is you know similar to black players for change in mls them actually listening to their hockey players and you know, postponing games for two days, um, while that is literally a drop in the bucket of the work that the NHL needs to do, none of us were expecting that. I was texting my friend Doug all day, you know, when statements were coming out, just in shock. Um, so I'm happy that hockey finally did the bare minimum and did not disappoint me this le- this week. Uh, hockey is my second favorite sport. It was obviously a very disheartening, disappointing, painful week to be a soccer fan. So it was nice to find a little bit of hope and optimism in the last place I expected the NHL. So the NHL can sit with me. End hockey rant on a soccer podcast. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank everyone for you know making time and, and Catherine for putting this together. Obviously, even though I just did the schmoozing hosting duties but thank you so much for making time to share your stories and feelings and our cell supporter cj you're wonderful thank you so much nick for joining in just to add a voice and much needed perspective and you know i love you you're my best friend and Catherine, as always total pleasure i love your rants never stop yelling i love you too meredith thank you so much And here's hoping that the world stops being on fire so, you know, we can stop doing a very special episode of, and last but definitely not least, tell us where to find you, Nick. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, WorkerDickMan22. Uh, Also, my podcast, Weekend Weird, if you want to get away from the sports, go to Weird Mundane, Cults, UFOs, Ghosts, the Strange Out in the World. It's, uh, we're on the same uh, platform you listen to this podcast. You listen to Spotify, we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio. Um, you can find us on uh, find Weekend Weird on Twitter at, at WeekendWeird.com. And uh, last but not least, uh, this one is for uh, Chad with Bronson. Man, we miss you. We're going to miss you. We love you. Um, rest, rest well, Your Highness. It's Wakanda forever. Um. Yeah, those are great. You can find me on Twitter, too. I, I, I never know which one to say. I guess it's at CJ underscore DUA or just CJ King of the Skittles, which is actually from one of my uh, treatment kids. 
um, who called me King of the Skittles because he was obsessed with Skittles. And I would go there every day and just eat them. And we, uh, we, we would argue about soccer all the time. Um, but anyway, um, or if, you know, you're on campus at Logan, you know, in Utah State, look me up and talk soccer with me. It's always great to be there. Uh, they don't want us in the office this semester for good reason, but still. And I, you can always find me just completely blowing up plastics posts uh, because there's so much fun to interact with. So. We love we that about you. Try. Catherine, where do we find you? Find me at KB underscore Tucker on Twitter. I don't even know how to pronounce my Instagram handle. And you can always find me at the plastics underscore SG. Meredith, where can the people find you? Uh, so you can find me at, at the soccer dom, D-O-M-M-E underscore, not to be confused with the soccer don, although I did it so you could be confused and I would pop up when you search for his name, marketing. Um, and also on the plastics underscore SG, gift game still going strong. Deloy out. Deloy out. If you would like to sit with the plastics, you can email us at admin at sitwiththeplastics.com. Every few weeks, we'll be getting dolled up and talking soccer with supporters from around the league.